you have your Bibles, please turn with me to John chapter 10. <clears throat> John chapter 10, our text will be verses 22 to 30. This has truly been a, an amazing chapter as Jesus has been declaring to us even more of his identity, that he is the good shepherd, that he is the door, he is the one who calls us out of the community sheepfold there in the first part of it. He is the one through whom we must enter in order to get into the sheepfold of, of God. There are so many things that we learned as he is using that metaphor of him being a shepherd. So many things about his identity, though. We remember that in the Old Testament, how many times that uh, the idea of God being a shepherd is used and Jesus is making those claims about himself. And we're seeing the excellency of our great shepherd, the chief shepherd, the good shepherd as we've been moving through this chapter. We've been seeing, of course, uh, the, the outstanding quality of who he is. That he's not a hired hand. He doesn't perform his duty out of uh, for any monetary gain or anything that he gains of himself. He protects the sheep. He provides for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep. He honors his father by doing so. There's so many things we learn there about his character. His character as the good shepherd is unmatched. There are none who can come close to him. He is infinitely greater and more splendid than any other in existence. This is the great shepherd of the sheep. And let us not forget, as we discussed last week, that passages like this are so vital for us to understand and to know because God is disclosing himself to us through passages like this. Again, our Lord Jesus did not come down from heaven and give some great discourse on, on the mystery of the being of God. He didn't do that. He didn't come down to, to give us this amazing information of, of trying to understand the incarnation or any other great doctrine of Scripture that we often wonder at and we stand in awe of. He didn't come down to disclose those things to us. But the things that he does disclose to us and the discourses that he gives and every word that proceeds from the mouth of Christ is revealing to us more about the character of God and the nature of God in a way that we as finite beings can understand. Because if he were to have come down from heaven and give this great elaborate teaching on, on the being of God, we could not comprehend it because the, in, the infinite is too, too much for us finite minds. As John Calvin would say that God speaks to us in a kind of baby talk that we can understand something about him. And so as Jesus is, is teaching us these things about him being the good shepherd or the door or any other thing that he has said thus far, he is revealing his character. He is revealing the character of the almighty God who rules over the heavens. This God is being revealed through the person of Christ. As John chapter 1 says, it's the son who is expounding the father that we may know him. Our text today reveals that very thing to us, even more so, about his nature, about his character, about his affection that he has for his people. And using, using that language of him being the good shepherd, we being his sheep, there's, there's affection that is being brought out there. We're told not only of this intimate knowledge that he has, not only this great affection that he has, this, this love that cannot be fully understood by us, not, not only is he saying those things in this passage, 
But he also teaches us again about what the people of God are to him and what they are as a gift from the Father. The people of God, you who are in Christ, are a love gift from the Father to the Son. That's who you are. That's what God has made you to be. You think of the infinite, immeasurable love of, of God within the, the Godhead. How much the Father loves the Son, and the Son loves the Father, and the Father loves the Holy Spirit, and the Spirit loves both the Father and the Son. The Son has been the object of the Father's love from all eternity. And, and now, as a demonstration of that love, the Father has gifted to the Son a bride, the church, the people of God. That is an unfathomable truth of Scripture when you begin to look at it. It's not just in the sense of Christ coming and trying to save sinners from the wrath of God. It's even more so than that. It's that the Father has gifted you to the Son and the Son is willingly and delightfully comes in order to accomplish redemption on your behalf because you have been given to Him by the Father and He delights in everything that the Father does for Him and He delights in you because you are His gift. You are His sheep. And what great affection that He has for you. But not only do we see that in this passage as well, but a very important truth that we learn as well about the oneness of the Godhead. This is a monumental truth that Jesus is proclaiming in this passage as well. When he says that I and the Father are one, he's not saying that I and the Father are one in agreement on what I'm just saying. Our, our agreement in our, according to our will is the same. He's saying something much more than that. He is saying that I and the Father are one in essence, one in substance. He is declaring the oneness of God, yes, and yet at the very same time that he says it, he is disclosing the plurality within the Godhead of what we understand as the triune nature of God. This is, again, a monumental truth that Jesus is proclaiming in the midst of them confronting Him about His identity. He once again gives it right back to Him. This is who I am, and I've told you this already. He's already declared very specific truths about Himself, but He goes even further now to declare His oneness with the Father, expressing that plurality within the Godhead and His identity. So as we approach this passage today, let us indeed pray that our minds will be filled with the true knowledge of our great God and Savior, that our hearts will be moved to praise Him even more so, and that our wills will be so affected as to desire to serve Him even more faithfully. Let us approach this passage and let Christ be set before our very eyes once more. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's Word. Our text is verses 22 to 30. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. And let us hear the words of the living God. At that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. 
The Jews then gathered around him and were saying to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me, but you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, how we thank you for this portion of your word. Thank you for the amazing truths that are disclosed to us within this passage that confront us even more with the identity and the character, the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ, who is our good shepherd, who is the chief shepherd. Father, guide our thoughts. Apply this passage to our heart by the power of the Holy Spirit who dwells within us. Let us learn from it. Let us praise you even more because of it. And let us walk indeed in obedience to you, delighting to do your will for all that you have done for us in Christ. To you be the praise, the glory, the honor in all things. In Jesus' name we pray. And all of God's children said, Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> we left off. There in verse 21, as Jesus was giving that first part of, of the good shepherd, of what it is to be the good shepherd, what the good shepherd does. And from that time until verse 22, there's at least you know, two months that have taken place. As we are told now, that this is the, at the time that the Feast of Dedication is taking place. The Feast of Dedication, you will recognize, of course, it's the, the, the festival of, of Hanukkah. Um, and if you've read any of the apocryphal books of the Maccabees, not inspired, by the way, but at least gives us a historical understanding about what has happened during the intertestament time, we read of in 167 B.C. of Antiochus IV, Antiochus Epiphanes, who was a Syrian king who was ruling over that area. He wanted to Hellenize uh, his portion of the kingdom, and specifically Israel. And so he was imposing this upon them, and so he had made laws in order to outlaw them serving the living God. He had sacrificed a pig on the altar to, to Zeus. There was a number of things of how he desecrated the temple of God, which we had read of in the book of Daniel when we were going through Daniel. <clears throat> then in 164, there was a rebellion that had been led by Judas Maccabeus. They had pushed the Syrians out. They had cleansed the temple. They rededicated the temple. And this specific festival here is in commemoration of that. It was not one that God had uh, commanded them to do within the Old Testament, but it was one that came about during the intertestament time. So it's, it's in the winter, as we are told here. This is, this is in December. The, fest, the, the Feast of Dedication is taking place. Jesus is there in Jerusalem. He's walking in the temple in the portico of Solomon. There's a lot of details given us uh, here 
uh, specifically about where Jesus is, where he's walking. It's winter time. It's cold. There's high winds. He's walking in the portico of Solomon, which is a covered area that went all the way around the outer court to shield you from the cold. And as Jesus is walking there with his disciples, the text tells us the Jews gathered around him. Now, when he's, he is saying that they gathered around him, perhaps they were waiting on him. It had been a couple months since this last interaction. Jesus had indicted them again on, on who they were and who they were supposed to have been. So a couple months later, Jesus is there and they gathered around him. And this word indicates they surrounded him and they pressed in upon him. This is the same word that is used for a military siege. This is how they gathered. It's like they swarmed him. They're pressing in upon him. And they say to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? And it means, How long do you lift up our soul in suspense? One writer had actually interpreted this passage in his version of this Greek text. How long will you annoy us? If you are the Christ... Tell us plainly. Now, in one way, this would seem to be perhaps a genuine question on their part. Maybe they're coming around. Maybe they really want to know, are you him or are you not? But this is not the case. Jesus has already declared certain truths about them. So far in the Gospel of John, we can go back and we can read a number of different things, but he's called them blind, that they are in darkness. They are of their father, the devil. They do not know the father and they will die in their sins. These are things that Jesus has declared about these, these leaders of Jerusalem. So they are not asking to truly inquire anything. They are looking once again to try to entrap him in his words. That's their goal. That's what they're out to do. And every opportunity that they have, they're going to take it to try to do this, even though Jesus continually backs them in a, quarter, a corner and Jesus puts them down. Any assault that they have ever tried to do on him, by his words, he has cast them down. How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Let's not beat around the bush anymore. If you're him, tell us. Now, if he had just come out and said, yes, I am, would they have done anything different? The answer would be no, because Jesus has already established the condition of their hearts, that they are in darkness. They're not asking in order to inquire about the truth of it. They want to entrap him. So what does Jesus say? Jesus answers and says, I told you and you do not believe. Now, we could go back in the Gospel of John and we could look and say, well, where is it exactly that Jesus had come straight out and said, I am the Christ. He has said numerous things concerning himself. He has declared himself to be the son of God, the son of man. He's from heaven. He's the bread of life. He's the light of the world. He's the door to, to enter into the sheepfold of, of God. He said of those who believe in him that from his innermost being will flow rivers of living, living water. He has declared himself to be the great I am already. These are numerous things that Jesus has said about himself. He originated from heaven. He came down from heaven. All of this language, it should have, it should have 
rang, rang within their minds there that he's claiming to be the Messiah. But not only by what he has said about himself, what he has declared about his identity, all those things that we have read thus far, in that he was declaring himself to be the Messiah, the Christ. He did not use that language, probably because of the political undertones that were attached to their understanding of the Messiah. They wanted a political ruler. And Jesus, as he is declaring these, these, these names about himself or these these names that identify him, he's, he's pushing away from that political understanding that they had in order to show them this is who the Messiah is and it's me. But not only by what he has said, but by his works. He says, the works that I do in my Father's name, these testify of me. Jesus has raised the dead. He has given sight to the blind. He's giving hearing to the deaf. He's, he cured the, the man who was mute. He has healed all kinds of infirmities, all those uh, uh, that uh, had various diseases. And all of that is characteristic of the Messianic age when you look back in the Old Testament. And so by the things that he's declaring about himself, by the works that he is doing, they should have understood very clearly, this is the Messiah, or he is claiming to be the Messiah. And yet everything that he said about himself and even the amazing truths or the, the amazing things that he did, the miraculous things that he did, they still would not believe. They refused to believe. He had just healed the man who was blind. And what did they do? They wanted to examine this man. Were you really born blind? They brought in his parents. Was he really born blind? Oh, he was. Well, we still don't believe it. Let's try to continue to discredit it. Because that is the darkness of their hearts manifesting. They don't want to believe in him. Jesus has declared numerous times already, specifically in John 3, men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. And this is true of those in the world today. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds are evil. They don't want to come to the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. To choose Christ is, is to choose the ultimate good, which is contrary to their very nature. And unless the Spirit of God does something within them, they will re remain unbelieving. They will remain in their sin. They will remain enemies of God. And they will remain uh, those that try to discredit anything about the Christian faith. Because that's who they are naturally. So that hasn't changed. You can come up with numerous evidences for the Christian faith. And by all means, apologetics is a good thing. And one of the main things that apologetics does is it silences your opponent. It is an avenue in order to, to declare the gospel. But simply defending the faith will never bring anyone to faith unless the Spirit of God applies the gospel to their hearts. Jesus has told them numerous times who he is. He's defended who he is. He's shown by his works who he is, and they still refuse to believe. And they refuse to do so because he says of them, you do not believe because you are not of my sheep. Now, notice this. He doesn't say, you are not my sheep because you haven't believed. He says, you do not believe because you are not my sheep. Now, this is one of those that would tend to make people uncomfortable. 
What does he mean by that? What is he declaring about them? You are not my sheep. You don't believe because you're not my sheep. Well, you're seeing, first, you've seen a number of things, of course. You've seen the inability of man here. The inability of man to come to Christ, left to himself, and we know that. For man is dead in his trespasses and sin. He's by nature a child of wrath. He doesn't accept the things of the Spirit of God because they're foolishness to him. He never seeks after God. He is not even able to submit himself to the law of God. He's an enemy of God. He's at enmity with God. He loves the world. And because of all that, Jesus would, had said back in John chapter 6, you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. You cannot come to me unless it is granted to you. And he's declaring to them, you don't believe because you're not my sheep. It has not been granted to you. That's why you don't believe. That's why you are, are my enemy. That's why they are continually antagonistic against him. Because they are not of his sheep. Now what's the implication there? It is directing us right back to the, the truth about predestination. Within that framework, predestination, you have two sides. Reprobation and election. Unless we are elect of God, we will never come. We will remain in our sin, remain enemies of God, and rightfully endure the justice of God for our sins. That doesn't seem fair. Is God choosing some and not others? Yes, He is. Because that's what grace is. If everyone deserves the justice of God, because all have sinned and fell short of the glory of God, in Adam, we all rebelled against God. We're morally responsible for our sin. If all mankind deserves the justice of God, and God says, I'm going to save some for my purpose and pleasure, not because they deserved it, but because I wanted to bestow my grace upon them, then there's no, no injustice done on God's part. He can do that, and He does do that. Understand this. Even if you reject the Reformed doctrine of election, you are not getting rid of the dilemma. It's still there. The problem people have is, well, God can't choose some and not others. That's not fair. Well, if we just begin to ask ourselves certain questions again, we'll realize we're not getting rid of the dilemma. It's still there. Do we believe that God knows all things? Yes, because He's omniscient. Do we believe that God knew before the foundation of the world, before He ever made the first speck of dirt, who was ever going to believe and who wasn't? Yes, we believe that. Because He knows all things. Then He knew everyone who would not believe before He ever made the first speck of dirt. Yes, He does. But He made them anyway. He made them knowing. He created them knowing that the final outcome would be that they would endure His justice. So you're not getting rid of the problem. But what we end up doing, instead of just accepting what the Scripture tells us, that all deserve the justice of God, and that grace is 
You don't earn it. You can't merit it. But God, for his own purpose and pleasure out of his love, is actually what Paul says, in love he predestined us. Out of his love, out of his purpose, out of his sovereign free will choice, as only God has free will, in the idea of what we understand it anyway, he chose to save some. No injustice on his part. What we end up doing if we reject those truths is we either diminish the sovereignty of God or we diminish the atonement of Christ. Christ has said in this passage, earlier in this passage, that he is the good shepherd and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He lays down his life for the sheep who are going to be identified here in this passage as those whom the father had given to him. They are a particular people. If again, as we talked about last week, if we reject that and have Jesus dying for every single person in the entire world, past, present and future, then we have to admit that Jesus's death accomplished nothing. It didn't do anything. If Jesus dies for everybody in general, he dies for nobody in particular. So what does that mean? That means his death on the cross only potentially accomplishes something for you if you, the sinner, activate that salvation, which is contrary to your very nature as we've been talking about. No sinner will ever come to Christ left to himself. Those that do are those that have been graced to do so. Those that have been chosen by the Father in eternity past to be the love gift to his son. Our Lord chooses the sheep. Christ dies for the sheep. The Holy Spirit of God gathers the sheep and prepares them for the great day, the marriage supper of the Lamb. Instead of, even though these things can, can, can make us a little uncomfortable at times, what it should do what it should do is to humble us and it should promote in us a greater praise to our God because of it. A greater trust in God, a greater confidence in God. When you look at the doctrine of election and you look at those passages that teach the doctrine of election, whether you're looking at Ephesians 1, you're looking at Romans 8, Romans 9, uh, Colossians chapter 3, uh, a number of different passages, you go on and on. First Peter 1. These passages, as they teach the doctrine of election, they are connected with some aspect of our sanctification to promote in us something, whether it's for the ground of our obedience is the doctrine of election, whether it's for the foundation of our character. Because the Apostle Paul says in Colossians chapter three, so as those chosen of God put on hearts of humility and compassion and all of that. So the doctrine of election is grounds for your character within you know, within the Christian faith. It's promoting in you a greater praise, a greater trust in times of distress and all of that. It is connected with your sanctification. So it understand it is vital that we understand it correctly instead of just passing it off or, or ignoring it or whatever. It should humble us. It should affect us and promote in us an even more uh, dedication and commitment to our God and, and understanding the, this, this amazing truth that is declared to us. So let us not diminish it. Let us not uh, you know, reinterpret it to be something that it's not. Let us take what the scripture says about it and believe it. 
If you are his sheep, it is because you were graced to be his sheep. You did not come to him left to yourself. But the Spirit of God caused such a change in you to take out your heart of stone and to give you a heart of flesh, to cause you to walk in his statutes, to give you that that desire to serve him. This is the work of the Spirit of God in you. He granted you the faith in order to believe upon him. You are in Christ by his doing, is what the Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1. By his doing, you are in Christ Jesus. You are his sheep because he chose you. You did not choose the shepherd. He chose you to be his sheep. And what does he say about you? But we go on here. You have this amazing intimacy between the shepherd and the sheep. He has declared about them that they are not his sheep. But what does he say about his own? He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. This is what he declares about his, about his sheep. My sheep, he has the ownership of them because he is giving his life for them. That's why the Apostle Paul says, your body is not your own. You've been bought with a price. That's why the Apostle Peter says, you were purchased with, with silver and gold and precious stones, but with the precious blood of the Lamb. Christ has poured out his life for you, and in doing so, you now belong to him. He has all authority over you. You were bought. You were redeemed. He purchased you from the marketplace. The marketplace of sin. One of the great, this is just a side note here, but one of the greatest examples of what it is to be redeemed is, is, is found in the book of Hosea. When we start in Hosea, we read of that, that he is told by the Lord to marry a woman of harlotry. And he marries Gomer. She's continually unfaithful to him. By the time you get to chapter 3, he is commanded by the Lord to go and to purchase his wife. So the implication there is, is that Gomer has went out with her lovers and has ended up a slave, ended up on the auction block. And then Hosea is commanded by the Lord to go into the marketplace and to purchase his wife. Now, when they auctioned off slaves, they didn't have any clothes. All could see. All knew who he was. And he walks in. He endures the shame. He endures the humiliation. He's walking in obedience to the Lord. And he goes and he purchases his wife. He buys her back. He clothes her. And he says, now you will remain with me. That is a beautiful picture of what Christ himself has done in redeeming you from the marketplace of sin. He bought you. You are his He says, my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And that that knowing, as we've talked about before, is is an intimate knowledge that Christ has with his own. It is a great affection that he has for his own, a great love that he has for his own. My sheep hear my voice. I know them. I love them. I have great affection for them and they follow me. This is really really establishing 
the, the perseverance of what we're getting ready to read of, even more so, but the perseverance of those that are in Christ. They hear the voice of the Son of God calling them out of the world, calling them from death to life, and they follow. They hear His voice because of the Spirit of God who quickens us, who makes us alive together with Christ, and we follow the shepherd that has laid down his life. We follow him in obedience. And we follow him just as he's using that, that analogy there. We follow him just as sheep follow their shepherd. That's where their protection is. That's where their care is from. That's where all the provision and everything is following the shepherd. And he leads to, to uh, places of, of green pastures. And he leads them beside still waters. And all the things that we read of in Psalm 23. When we follow the shepherd, we want for nothing. But here's what he does. He says, and I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. I give eternal life to them. Now, as we've talked about, eternal life, the gift of eternal life, or the blessing of eternal life that Jesus is referring to here is not just living forever. Eternal life is defined by Christ as knowing God. That's the way Jesus expresses it in John chapter 17. This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. The great blessing of eternal life is knowing God. And Christ has granted access to His sheep to come before His Father and to know His Father and to be loved by His Father. To call upon His Father as children of God. The other elements are there, of course. We are privileged to live forever in Christ. Forever in heaven. It is, is a place of, of infinite joy. Life everlasting in the presence of God. Eternal comfort, eternal care by God Himself. There's a number of things there to look forward to when we enter into heaven, but the greatest gift of all is being able to know God. That is the greatest treasure of, of salvation is knowing God. This is the living God. This is the King of glory, the one who sits on His cosmic throne, the one who is high and exalted, this God who speaks creation into existence, who constantly have His angelic hosts surrounding Him and crying out, Holy, 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 expressing this amazing attribute of God, His holiness, the One who, is, who dwells in unapproachable light, that glory that surrounds the, the presence of God, His glory being His holiness on display, the One who rules over the heavens, who rules over the nations, this God has revealed Himself in His Son, Jesus Christ, who has given His life for you and has brought you into His family. That you may know Him. That you would know the wonderful truths about Him that we find in Scripture, that we marvel at, that we stand in awe of, especially, especially speaking of His holiness. He's holy. He's altogether righteous. He's good. 
He's just. There are so many different things that we read of in Scripture about who God is. How does God interact with sinners? You find that in the life of Christ. What compassion God has for sinners, you see that in the life of Christ. So many things are revealed to us about God, and we have the privilege of knowing Him even more so every time we pick up the Scripture to read and to study and to know. We are privileged to know Him, and never will they perish. Never will anyone of God's elect ever be lost. There will never be a time in which one that Christ has died for will ever perish because the promise, and I know that many non-reformed folks like to go to John 3.16, but when you read John 3.16, for God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. Even in that text, you have the security of the believer being understood there. Those who believe will not perish, ever. That's the great promise that you have. Those who believe will never perish. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 40, that everyone, this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in Him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise Him up on the last day. It's a done deal. When we believe genuinely with saving faith, the guarantee is that you will never perish, but you will be raised up by the Son of God on the last day. That is the great promise of God, and God is faithful, who will never lie, who never deceives, who has all power and authority to hold you in His hand because no one else can snatch you from His hand. No one will snatch them out of My hand is what Jesus says. You can't forfeit your own salvation, and no one, no wolf, no wolf in sheep's clothing, no false teacher, not Satan, not anyone else can ever pluck you from the hand of God. And you find a perfect example of that in the book of Job. When you read Job, we, we read of the first two chapters, we see how Satan and, and the other angelic hosts come before the Lord. The Lord begins this dialogue with Satan about Job. Now, Job, as he has all these terrible things that happen, his, his children, ten of his children, they, they all die. He loses all of his cattle, all of that. He's covered in, in sores. He doesn't understand why this is happening. Yeah, now, you have the majority of the book of Job that is his friends trying to understand you know, why this is happening to you. We understand why it's happening because we know what's happened in the first two chapters. But when you look at that whole scenario of this, this, this dialogue between God and Satan, Satan doesn't bring up Job to the Lord. The Lord says to, Job, or to Satan, have you considered my servant Job? The Lord is putting him to the test. Now, if, was this particular thing a test specifically for Satan? I don't know. But the outcome of it is no matter what, is, no matter what occurs in the life of a genuine believer, Never will they forfeit, never will they turn their back on the Lord, but they will always trust even in times that they don't understand, and that is because the Spirit of God is in them, working in them faith in, in terrible circumstances of which we would normally say, we give up. That is the greatest lesson on the security of the believer and the perseverance of the saints is when you look at the book of Job. Because Job was never lost even in the times in which he was questioning things. Never did he turn his back. 
Never did he say, I'm done. But at the end he says, I've heard of you now, I know you. No one will ever snatch you out of the Father's hand. Not even the greatest of enemies. And if that isn't enough to hear Christ even say that, he says, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one's able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. Is there any greater than God? And the answer to that is, of course, no. God has infinite power, infinite authority. He is infinitely greater than any other in existence. Who can match the power of God? Who can thwart the hand of God or the purposes of God? There are none. If God has purposed to save you, then you will never be lost. Because not only are you preserved in the Son's hand, you're preserved in the Father's hand. And He is greater than all by comparison. Now, there is, interestingly, when it comes to that passage, there there is a little bit of a difference within some of the manuscripts, and there's actually some some strong support uh, for the reading of this passage to be, that which my Father has given to me is more excellent than all. To where it's not necessarily speaking of the greatness of the Father, but on the people of God being the most excellent gift from the Father. There are many uh, theologians like William Hendrickson, for example, who favors that reading. That which my Father has given to me is more excellent than all. Again, expressing this amazing truth that you are a love gift from the Father to the Son. Now, look at this. In Titus chapter 1, we've been over before. Let me bring it back to your remembrance. In Titus chapter 1, beginning of verse 1, we'll just read the first two verses. Listen to what the Apostle Paul says. He says, Paul, a bondservant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth which is according to godliness and the hope of eternal life which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now the apostle Paul is expressing his ministry, what his ministry is is for, who's it toward, and it's for the faith of those chosen of God and for the knowledge of the truth. It's for the hope of eternal life. He's expressing his ministry. But in the midst of him expressing his ministry, he also makes this statement there, in hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ages ago. Now, that means that that language there at the end part of chapter or verse 2, it means before times eternal. Before times eternal, God had made a promise, and that promise is, is, is expressed, or it's being carried out, won by the Apostle Paul and his ministry. Now, what promise did God make before times eternal? And who did he make it to? Before times eternal, there's no one there. There's no angelic host there. There's no people there. The Apostle Paul is telling us that God made a promise before times eternal concerning 
that which the Apostle Paul is doing. Who did he make a promise to? The only ones that are there are the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. And if we look at all these passages of Scripture that express what the Father is doing for the Son, then the conclusion that we come to is is that the Father had made a promise to the Son. And that promise is being carried out throughout His ministry, especially in His, His finished work, and then through the proclamation of the Gospel. The promise is, I'm gifting you a bride. He made a promise to the Son. Before times eternal, we read of in Revelation chapter 13, verse 8. Listen to the language here. All who dwell on the earth will worship Him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who has been slain. All those that will worship the beast are those whose names has not been written in the Lamb's book of life from the foundation of the world. Now we take that understanding and then we go back to what Ephesians 1 says that you were chosen by God before the foundation of the world. Then when we're putting that all together, it's the Father makes a promise to the Son. I'm gifting you a bride and here is the Lamb's book of life with all the names of your bride in it. I have chosen them. And then you see the, the Lord Jesus coming in order to carry out redemption for those that the Father has gifted to Him. And He uses that language again in John chapter 17. Those whom you have given Me, you are indeed a love gift from the Father to the Son, and you are a most excellent gift from the Father to the Son. There is no gift greater than the bride of Christ. What a great expression of love that the Father is showing to the Son, gifting Him a bride, which is you who are in Christ. It's amazing indeed to know or to understand as best as we can what love that God has for us. But it's also so amazing to see what love that the Father has for the Son. what love the Son has for the Father. It's like we're pulling back the veil and being able to see within the Holy of Holies and to see the interaction among those within the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and to see that perfect love and perfect communion and perfect fellowship that exists there in those times in which John pulls back the veil for us. You are indeed a gift from the Father to the Son. No one can snatch you out of His hand. No one can snatch you out of the Father's hand. And the reason why none can snatch you out of either hand is because Jesus declares this truth that will eventually make them once again want to kill Him. But He says, I and the Father are one. We're not one in agreement. We're not one in purpose. Those things are true. They are absolutely one in agreement. They are one in purpose. When it comes to the will of God, they are in absolute unity. But Jesus is expressing something a little different here. Something about His nature. I and the Father are one in essence. One in substance. The very thing that makes God God. 
the Son has in the fullest measure, the Father has in the fullest measure, the Holy Spirit has in the fullest, me- the fullest measure. And yet you have the declaration by Christ that they are one, which harkens us back to the, one of the great truths of, of the Old Testament concerning Israel is in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. But it's that Hebrew word, echad, which means compound nature. Jesus is expressing that even fuller in the statement that he makes here. Yes, God is one, but God is compound nature. And he says, I and the Father are one, but that verb right there, are, it actually means we are. I and the Father, we are one. So he's expressing the difference between himself and the Father, and yet the unity that they have and the oneness that they have in essence and in substance. What a great mystery it is of the triune nature of God, but it is an established truth within the Scripture. And the Apostle Paul expresses that as well in Philippians chapter 2. Verse 5, he says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, a thing to be held on to. And that one statement right there, the Apostle Paul is establishing that very truth of the equality of the Son and the Father. But then he goes on to express how the Son has willingly submitted to the Father in becoming fully man, truly man, and carrying out what the Father had commanded of him. I and the Father are one. The one whom you serve, the one who has died for you, the good shepherd that laid down his life for you, that took your punishment, that endured the wrath that was due to you, who delights in you because you're a gift from the Father, this Good shepherd, the chief shepherd, the great shepherd, as he is called in the scripture, this is, in fact, the eternal God who has done this for you. Christ Jesus is truly God and truly man. He is the God-man who carried out all the demands of the law of God, who endured your punishment, and who did so for the joy that was set before him. He is the good shepherd that cares so greatly for his sheep who provides all that is needed for you. You want for nothing if you just follow the good shepherd. You are so precious in the eyes of the good shepherd because you are a gift from the Father to him. And he delights in you. And he loves you with an immeasurable love And the greatest act of love that he could ever express to demonstrate that love was to die in your place. To endure the intense wrath of his father in your place and satisfy the justice of God for you. Ultimately, his father will be glorified. That's the main reason Christ does anything. But it was to purchase his bride, those that the father had given him how amazing our God is how amazing our good shepherd is who calls us to follow him how much more do we need in order to to be stirred within our hearts to walk in obedience 
What other things can we say to express the majesty of Christ? There's not enough superlatives in the English language to express the majesty of Christ. There's not a greater word. uh, There should be, but there isn't. To express what love that he has. Love in the English is just, it's not a big enough word to express the great affection that he has for you and what he did for you. How much more do you need in order to just follow in obedience? Follow the shepherd who is leading you in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Who is leading you towards the celestial city. Sometimes we've got to sit and think for a moment because we're never satisfied. We have a hard time being satisfied. But if we would just put our focus back on Him and just reflect upon what it is that He's done, who He is, and the fact of who He is just intensifies the things that He's done. We shouldn't need anything else to stir our emotions and to stir our hearts to say, yes, Lord, I will follow. I pray indeed that this passage would stir within us such a great desire, great affection for our Lord that we would recognize He has done so much and continues to do for us every minute, every moment because He is faithful to His people. We need to be faithful to Him as well and to express our love by walking in obedience and to delight in doing so. We will stop there and we will finish this chapter next week. Let's pray together. O God of our salvation, we honor you this day. We praise your name. Father, how amazing you are. How glorious is your name in all the earth. How glorious is the name of our Lord Jesus Christ the good shepherd who has laid down his life for us, his sheep. Father, we get so caught up in things of this world. We get so caught up in in various things that go on in our lives, whether good or bad. We so easily forget. We forget what you've done for us as we sing in the hymn often. We're prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it prone to leave the God I love. Father, I pray that you would keep us close to you. Keep us from stumbling. Guard our hearts and produce such a desire in us from from your word, the truths that we find within your word to produce such a desire in order to serve you even more faithfully, to give you greater adoration, greater praise for all that you've done for us in Christ. There aren't enough words Father, to express who you are or what Christ has done or what love that you have for us. Father, I pray that each day you would teach us even more so of it, though. Allow us to understand, though we may not be able to express it fully, the great affection that you have for us and us for you. Help us to walk in paths of righteousness for your name's sake, to walk worthy of Christ to honor Him until the day that you call us home. 
thank you for this portion of your word, and we praise your holy name for it. In Jesus' name we pray, and all of God's children said, Amen.